and welcome to the Five Aero Podcast, the podcast dedicated to the global aviation industry. We're back again and we're joined with Peter Lynham and Chris Tarry to discuss the latest developments in the aviation industry. Hi, gents. How are you this week? Hello, Andrew. I'm uh, very well, thanks. Very well. Thank you, Andrew. Well, it's been another really busy couple of weeks for aviation news, so let's get straight into it right now. Okay, so there's so much to talk about this week. We're going to look at the implications of a no-deal Brexit. We're going to look at the last ever 747 flight. And that's not just nostalgia. There's there's some real implications for that. We're also going to look at the implications of the reduction in quarantine time and what that might do for the air travel industry. We're going to discuss IATA and what they're saying about bookings and whether we're seeing that flow through to the market. And then finally, we're going to touch on the Norwegian air issue going into Chapter 11. But let's go right back up to the top. Peter, um, it's the... 15th of December, we are 16 days away from a no-deal Brexit. Uh, We know that we don't actually know what's going to happen, but what are the implications if we get a deal? What are the implications if we don't get a deal? I'm just thinking back, Andrew, to a time when I left an airline engineering department many years ago. My leaving gift was a crystal ball, which I've probably still got here somewhere. I think it, (laughs) it probably needs a polish, doesn't it? I think for aviation, it is in some ways very similar and in some ways different to all of the other sectors which are potentially impacted by Brexit. And I think the main similarity is nobody knows. So um, we all see the announcements, the communications from government. Uh, You can't miss them. They're on the TV. They're in your email. They're everywhere about make sure your organization is uh, prepared for Brexit But of course, nobody knows what to do because we don't know the rules yet because the rules haven't been decided upon. All you can do in terms of preparation is to worry and become even more stressed about it, I think. Where I think that aviation differs from some of the other sectors is that it introduces a direct level of uncertainty to consumers. So, for example, we know that there may or may not be tariffs um, on safe uh, foods um, come the 1st of January. We don't know what the tariffs might be, uh, but then we know that there's a possibility that, for example, strawberries coming from Spain might be more expensive. And consumers will deal with that as and when that issue comes up. There could well be implications for aviation, There has been a proposal from the EU for a kind of almost another interim deal where they keep some of the aviation sector running, but not all in the event that a wider deal can't be signed. So if you're a consumer now, do you look to book a trip to Europe in January, February or March? Because you don't know whether that trip's going to be allowed or not. You know that there's going to be some direct implications for you in terms of passport validity and what have you, and and you can deal with that. But at the moment, you don't know whether your airline is going to be able to fly at quarter past two from the airport and that you live nearby to the place that you want to go. So I think this is where it, it is even harder for the aviation industry. And and we're seeing that in in terms of bookings. We'll talk later on about how the market's looking. But certainly all the information that I'm getting is there seems to be a much higher level of confidence for people who are looking at long-haul bookings uh, than there is people looking at short-haul bookings. And that's for leisure purposes and business purposes as well. Now, again, depending on what deal is eventually thrashed out, 
there will be uh, implications for the ownership of airlines because lots of the airlines in Europe are now part of pan-European groups. Uh, we think of Air France KLM, France and the Netherlands. We think of Lufthansa, which has uh, sister companies in Belgium, in Austria, um, etc. And we think of IAG, which is uh, British and Spanish and Irish all at the same time. And all sorts of rules have been postulated about what the ownership structure of those companies would be, who has voting rights, etc. And Chris and I could speculate on that until um, the cows come home. But until we actually see signatures on a piece of paper from Brussels and from London, nobody can actually be sure what those implications are going to be. I suppose, Chris, and we, we, we've touched on this a lot on some of the other shows that we've done over on Infracast and previously here on Five Aero. It's just another confidence factor that the, the industry just doesn't need, does it? It's another reason why you shouldn't book an air, a flight. And, and the obvious market is wonderfully middle class, isn't it? But you can see that nobody's booking a skiing holiday down to in January when the slopes are finally open, which is a major source of revenue for, you know, short haul revenue for the airlines. And nobody's going to do that because they, they don't know what they're booking for. Andrew, uh, you're absolutely right. Peter, you, you summed it up uh, extremely well, I think. Uh, the only thing that is certain is the uncertainty. And when there is uncertainty, people's default position is to do nothing. And whilst over the medium term, we expect that it will be short haul that recovers more quickly, what we have now is, a, at the moment, a constraint uh, because of the uncertainty, and the constraint will mean that people won't travel. And again, if we look at it and add to that and say, what is likely also to happen is that the UK is to, going to be put on a list where it is not an accepted country. It is seen to have a high COVID risk. That will put another con uh, constraint on people being able to travel into Europe. So it's a real mess. And we know that the demand is there. We saw it in the summer when the restrictions were lifted. People came back very quickly. Uh, we saw it for the leisure market. And again, you've got two leisure markets in Europe. One is the winter sun, which in the UK was effectively closed down to the Canary Islands last week. And the other is the uh, ski and the snow. And that looks as though it's going to be almost closed or effectively closed by the uncertainty that we're seeing around Brexit. You then add the economic disruption effect. And it was already the case that if you looked at the UK over the period to 2024 and you looked at the EU 27 plus the UK, in terms of economic recovery, the UK languished in 25th position. And that's before we see what happens on the 1st of January uh, and beyond. So uncertainty is never good. Uh, and we're seeing it at very close quarters over the next uh, 16 days uh, and into the start of the year. Andrew, I think there are some practical implications here for our listeners who work in airlines and airports and also hotels and in, indeed perhaps restaurants as well. Customers are booking much, much later than they normally do. They're making the decision really close to the date of travel or the date of the experience so that they have as much certainty as possible over what restrictions are going to apply to them, what facilities are going to be open. And so for people running airlines, they're going to have to do this in a completely different way. They won't get months of notice for uh, constructing aircraft deployments and crew rosters and things like that. They're going to have to shift potentially aircraft and crew from the Canaries to the snow at a couple of days' notice and then back again. Um, and this is a whole new way of working um, for our industry. And I think the other thing, Peter, as well, if we look at the latest consumer spending data, there's only one sector that is doing worse than airlines, 
uh, for the November data, and in fact, for most of the year since we saw COVID-19, and that's the travel agents. And if we look at the November Barclay card data, I think it was down 73% travel agents were down slightly more. That has an immediate impact on the cash not coming into these businesses. And as you say, we saw it when restrictions were lifted, the cash began to come back, but uh, it's not been very good. But it's a nightmare in all respects. Peter, I, I would completely agree with what you're saying. A, a real life example here. So we like to go skiing for a, a week, two weeks in in March. We're middle class; it's fine. But we're doing exactly that. We, we're not we're not booking. We're waiting and seeing. We get all the emails saying about how you can refund, you know, your full refunds and all of that. But you just, you, I'm not going to do it until I know what I can do. Anyway, um, let's move on. We we're going to have to monitor Brexit, but. I suppose the, the annoying thing is that by the time that this podcast goes out, the position will probably have changed or changed again. Anyway, we're talking about bookings. IATA have come out with some news. What are they saying to us? Well, uh, I think even before IATA um, said something, we, we get uh, information every week from OAG, which monitors capacity in the system. And actually, the capacity has, has stayed flat for quite a few weeks now. However, IATA are saying that bookings um, are actually recovering quite healthily where there is an established travel corridor and people can at least remove some of the uncertainty at either end of the route. So that has implications for load factors. And in fact, some of the information I was getting uh, in the UK earlier on today was that BA was operating short-haul flights with 102% load factor uh, last week. And, and that's because they've set the capacity, but people are finally starting to book. So we, we will expect to see full aeroplanes if, if, if the aeroplanes are operating. And in fact, those of us who have been trying to book long-haul travel over the first two or three months of next year to try and get away from gloomy Britain and all the bad news, it's almost like trying to hit a moving target because as fast as you home in on a destination and you start looking at hotels and whatever, you go back to the airline and you find the seats you thought you had have gone and have been bought by somebody else. So so leisure traffic, as, as Chris predicted a few weeks ago, is definitely bouncing back. I think uh, what's not coming back shows no sign of coming back is is business travel, particularly long haul travel. And certainly speaking a friend to a friend of mine who has a senior position in in a bank in Canary Wharf, and it, he just does not see this coming back at all ever in the way that it was. In in that you had these kind of flight warriors who flew every week, did one long haul flight to the states, and then maybe at the end of the week did a short haul flight to Frankfurt or Zurich. He he just can't see that being justifiable going forward. I, I think it points exactly to what we've been saying since almost almost since March, where we're saying there is no shortage of demand to fly. As soon as those um, routes open up, you can see you saw we saw the graphs you can see how they just jumped straight back into it but i would agree that business travel is i think that's a long long that's a long long route back well i think if we, if we look at it in very simple terms of we're coming to the start of 2021 how many companies have got travel uh, a significant amount of travel in their budget lines the accounts or the budgets have been signed off i would doubt there was very much at all and as you're saying peter we, we saw the iata uh, chart uh, this week, um, and it was based on the UK's announcement of its test to release policy. Uh, and as soon as it announced it, we saw this takeoff in bookings, but it went from 2,000 a day uh, to six, well, about 5,000. Uh, and that's to uh, North America or to the US. Um, that's against the background where probably the average daily number of passengers, one way passengers, is 30,000 each way. So, uh, yeah, you've got to start somewhere. It's important. Um, it's a long way back. 
and it's going to be leisure and it's going to be VFR. And um, if the capacity comes back in, then you ought to go through the floor as well. So um, challenging times. I think another interesting measure of that, Chris, is I was looking at the BA long haul operation yesterday and, and they're back to operating over 40 flights a day, which is nowhere near the kind of 100 plus flights that happened before, but it's a lot better than the dozen or so a day that we had during the lockdown. If you look at those 40, it's pretty much a 50% split between aircraft um, going west and aircraft going east. So there is a, a significant rebalancing going on from that North Atlantic traffic to uh, Southeast Asia, South Africa traffic, etc. And also the Indian subcontinent, where again, there is tremendous demand for people to go and see their friends and relatives. But traditionally, that's been much lower yield than flying Canary Wharf high flyers to mm -hmm. uh, New York and Washington. Yeah. And I think the other thing, if we look at some of the data we can interrogate, if we look at, for example, Inchon for Seoul, uh, we can see BA is uh, back there flying. I think it's um, three times a week or something like that. I can't quite recall the figure, but it's 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 cargo, and it's um, for a period of time it was just outbound cargo. There's a little bit of inbound going in there now, um, but um, you know that's only visible because of the detail of the data that um, Incheon Airport supplies. It's very 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 interesting data. Yeah, and if you were uh, fortunate enough to have a ticket this week on BA to Hong Kong and also some of the other European airlines. Um, you found now that you can't travel because the Hong Kong authorities at, at zero notice have, have banned carriers from taking passengers to Hong Kong for between one and two weeks because they've had people arrive with the wrong documentation or they've had people arrive with COVID symptoms. Um, so that they take these things incredibly seriously in places like Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, etc. And rightly so, which sort of raises the point again about having internationally agreed standards for um, testing for one. Uh, and as you say, Peter, the documentation that you arrive and in good faith you've had a test, um, but it needs to be accepted by the other, other end of the route. It's almost as if we just keep coming back to the same points, isn't it? That it's pre-departure testing it is the vaccine at, when that comes and then it's the health passports. And you just can't, as soon as you start to study this industry in any sh shape or form, you come to those answers very, very quickly. You do, but uh, there isn't necessarily a consistent position amongst the airlines yet, Andrew, on that. I mean, two which come to mind immediately are Qantas who said, uh, yes, there will have to be a health passport and you won't be allowed on board if you've not got evidence that you've been vaccinated. Whereas uh, their counterparts in TUI are saying, no, that's not the role of the airline. We're not here to um, uh, deny carriage to people who, for whatever reason, haven't had the vaccine. So at the moment, it's an inconsistent position. Again, we will monitor it like we do with all of these stories. Now, while we were talking there, we, we touched on BA, we touched on the lack of premium level travel, and we touched on the lack of cargo. Now, all of those stories can feed into the retiring of the, the 747 from BA. Now, this you you could see this as a bit of a nostalgia story. You know, it's, a, it's an old, very faithful aircraft that's been retired, but there's actually some implications for this for the market, isn't there? Yeah. I and mean, BA, at one stage, was the biggest operator of... Um, 747s and it's it's operated 57 of the the dash 400 series which are the aircraft that are in the process of being retired at the moment uh, ba had a plan to remove those aircraft anyway by 2022 so what it's effectively done is, is advance that 
uh, two years. And it does have lots of implications. It's, uh, it reduces BA's fuel bill. It reduces uh, emissions and impact on the environment, etc. But it also removes uh, a tremendous amount of first-class capacity from the market. And this may well coincide very neatly with the lack of business travel that we talked about earlier on. It also removes um, a whole load of cargo capacity. The 747 was a tremendous lifter in terms of volume and weight and was very useful um, for the airlines. In terms of carrying cargo on passenger aircraft, which is actually the biggest part of the market. People think about pure freighters, but actually most of the cargo travels on passenger aeroplanes. Um, and as well as the 747s um, being removed, and of course the A380s, um, probably what people haven't spotted is that the the Antonov 124 fleet, these huge Russian freighters that, that particularly carry uh, strange shaped uh, cargo that won't fit in any other aeroplane, um, that fleet is grounded at the moment over various safety concerns. So just at a time when air freight is recovering and at a time when we're going to be relying on it to distribute the vaccines around the world, a significant amount of capacity has just been removed. And inevitably, what that has led to already is a huge increase in yields. In other words, the price you pay to ship a kilo of cargo. I think the the other interesting thing, Peter, from that is if we look at the airport figures and we look at Heathrow, where BA is the major carrier, um, then its cargo volumes are, have recovered to about 82% of what they were a year ago. And you can trust that with Frankfurt, which has uh, dedicated freighters, a considerable number of dedicated freighters, obviously, with Lufthansa Cargo and others. Cargo there is uh, about 102% of what it was in um, uh, November uh, 2019. Okay, it's not the only reason. Um, but uh, it's as, as we've talked before, you look at uh, demand being there, it's the ability of the supply side to accommodate it. And I think also on, on the point you make about taking large airplanes out is also has implications for transfer traffic as well. And um, if, if you haven't got those 100 extra seats to fill, well, then uh, t- two things. Um, you, you don't need to fill them. You don't need to get into a sort of race to the bottom with other demand aggregators in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, and over time, it will have a revenue benefit. We've seen it where the 350s come in, and we've seen it where the 787 has come in and replaced larger aeroplanes. Um, you get to a point where diminishing returns set in, and they set in very quickly in a market that's down. And that has implications for the airports, uh, Chris, doesn't it? In that the, it's the transfer passengers who tend to um, wander around the shops and, and sit in the restaurants for a few hours while they wait for their second flight. So um, it's going to hit their business models as well. Well, dwell, dwell time is very good for retail spending at airports. <laughs> yes, I can have first-hand experience of that. And I get, we, like we said at the top there that, you know, you could see this as a nostalgia story. But in some ways, the retiring of that plane, it's telling you everything that is going on with the industry and to an extent what will come out the other side. Okay, take, take out the, the cargo element because we know how cargo has, has increased, but you're going to see more efficient planes. They're going to be smaller. They're not going to fly. You know, it's going to be short haul. It, it's all wrapped up. It's going to be less, you know, more economy driven or, or premium economy as opposed to business and, and first class. That's the whole future of the industry almost within that plane. Yeah, it certainly looks like that um, at the moment. And I think if we look at the new generation aeroplanes and we look at uh, the three, 350 and the 787, and the interesting thing is if you look at it on a daily utilisation basis, they're at least as good, if not better, than they were a year ago. 
And, um, you know, if I was running an airline, I was a strategy advisor at an airline and uh, I needed more, you know, if, if my, I wanted to change my fleet, I'd be seeking to get as many of these as I could as quickly as possible because you get a structural benefit. And the other thing that's interesting, we see the narrow body, we see the 321, the 321neo, uh, and um, we've seen JetBlue announce that it's going to fly from the US to Gatwick. And it will be that aeroplane, um, ideal. And we're seeing, we've seen Aer Lingus register, uh, as well, uh, to fly, I believe, out of the UK. And that will be narrow bodied aeroplanes because they've got the range. Yeah. And I think that's, um, fascinating. The, if you look at carriers who have a mixture of new generation 320s and 321s, the NEOs and the older generation, the capacity that they've taken out from the start, um, has been the older generation ones. Um, because it might be a small percentage that you're gaining on fuel. Uh, but when you aggregate that up over a, a large fleet and over a period of time such as a year, then um, what starts off as a, uh, a fairly meaningful figure becomes a hugely meaningful figure in, in the aggregate. And I think if we look at it on the revenue side as well, where you are on the revenue curve um, with fewer seats to fill, um, you, you're going to make more money. Well, talking of companies that, that haven't made as much money, uh, let's look at Norwegian Air. They filed for Chapter 11. Uh, so just explain what that means and what we think is going to happen next. Okay, well, cha- Chapter 11 is a mechanism to uh, that affords uh, creditor protection and enables you to reorganize your business and hopefully come out the other side, not necessarily in the shame, same shape and size. And in the case of Norwegian, it, it isn't a great surprise. Um, and we have to look at what the impact will be uh, from the gap in the market. Now, given that the market is effectively in hibernation at the moment, um, it's not, it's, it will take uh, some capacity out uh, whilst they restructure, reorganize, and it's an acceleration of the process perhaps they were uh, undertaking before. But it's an opportunity for others to come in. They built a significant market presence, certainly in the UK. Uh, they had a significant presence at Gatwick. And at the moment, uh, it is not possible or it may not be possible to go straight into the market um, and compete uh, if uh, the slot rule waiver, uh, whereby the 80-20 rule is suspended for the summer season. And we've seen where other airlines have um, gone into Chapter 11 and failed. There's always been a great debate about who has the rights to the slots uh, up until the last minute. And this is going to be an issue for regulators. It's going to be an issue for lawyers and economists. But in the case of Norwegian the, the only thing perhaps we can say is we wish them well in the restructuring because they have been a disruptor in the market. Uh, and uh, we watch and wait and see with great interest to see what uh, they will watch, the size and shape they will emerge in. We certainly will. And let's finish up here with with a slightly better news story. Um, quarantine. It seems as if the rules, and we've, we've been talking about the impact of quarantine and why that has such a big impact on the market. Quarantine, it looks as if we might start to see some wriggle room and some reductions in the quarantine requirements that are going on. Yeah, I think wriggle room is probably a good way of describing it because it is slightly better news, but it's not hugely better news. So in the UK, um, if you are traveling from a place which is not on the approved list at the moment or up to now, you've had to quarantine for 14 days. Now, as of this week, that's been cut to 10 days. So that is slightly better, but that is still obviously a significant inconvenience upon you if you're expecting to go back to work as soon as you arrive. There is a way around that, which also um, has been enacted this week. Um, You can reduce that to five days plus evidence of a negative 
test. However, it's never quite as simple as that in the UK, is it? So you have to uh, take your test um, at one of the suppliers, which is on an approved government list. Um, this has only been running a day and already the list has changed. <laughs> so some people have been removed and some people have been added. And our uh, friend and colleague, Paul Charles, who comments on this um, every day, has tried to get on all of their websites today. And I think he's failed to get on e each of those websites. And some of the companies have said, well, we're not really even in the business of offering these tests yet. Um, and of course, they're not necessarily the companies who turn around the test in the shortest possible time. So at some of them, you may well be waiting three or four days for the answer. So that five days has become nine days. Um, and you're probably 100 quid out of pocket. And actually, you might as well just work, wait the 10th day and you're in the same <laughs> position as everybody else. So great idea. But I think I think it needs a lot more polish before it's going to be of any use to anybody. Highlight highlights the implementation is all, doesn't it, Peter? Well, well uh, it does. It does. I, I hate to be the expat that goes on about how great where they live is and how poor Britain is, and I never do that. I cannot stand that person. But just to provide context with that, um, we regularly have to have the tests up the nose, the PCR ones. Uh, last week, I booked mine on Friday afternoon. I had it at five o'clock. I, had, I was in and out of the centre within two minutes, and I received my results at four o'clock the following morning, and it cost me... I think it was about 18 pounds. It's possibly one of the cheapest things you can actually buy in Dubai. But, you know, it is possible, but obviously there are lots of different reasons why it's possible here and more difficult in the UK, but it is possible. Anyway, gents, it's been, uh, we're, we're just about out of time. It's been another fascinating discussion. As always, leave your comments in the LinkedIn or, or email us individually on the website. And we will be back next time to discuss more about what's going on in this wonderful industry. Thanks, Andrew. Goodbye and um, all the very best for Christmas. <laughs> Absolutely, Andrew. Thank you. And uh, we look forward to speaking very soon.